Thank you very much. Great to see you. If you don't know me, my name is Philip. I'm part of the team here. And uh, the way we do our preaching is we do it in blocks, in chunks. We call it a series where we can look at, at a kind of thematic uh, part of life. Uh, sometimes we'll look at a whole book of the Bible. Sometimes we'll look at a character from the Bible. Uh, but what we always do every single year without fail, as we approach Easter and we're now into Lent, on the road to Easter, we love to delve into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Now, for this series, we're predominantly in the book of Luke. And we love to just dig into the stories of Jesus, who he is, what he does, how he interacts with people. Because we want to, when we get to Easter, know why it's such a big deal that he died for us, that he rose again and the difference that he makes in our lives. Now, this whole thing, Jesus eats, is really interesting because if you don't know anything about faith, about Jesus, about Christianity, you might be tempted to think that when God reveals himself to the world, it would be holy, that he would be this kind of holier than thou floating over the surface of the world figure with a serene expression on his face. Actually, Jesus doesn't present like that at all. Jesus is all about the food and the drink. So much of what we see Jesus doing is over the meal table. In fact, Jesus does more in the dining room than he does in the temple because food and eating and people drinking parties that's where life happens. That's where relationships spark. And that's where Jesus is right there in the midst of this. He's right in the kind of middle of everyone's celebration and eating and drinking. True story, Jesus had a nickname from the people that were against him that were not happy with what he did. And that nickname was the wine bibber. That's a um, literal King James version of uh, the, the word that we have about Jesus. They said, uh, in more modern translation, he's a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners. Because whenever we see Jesus, he's always eating, he's always drinking. But it was in these mealtimes, in this breaking of bread, in surprising ways, sometimes with crowds of thousands, sometimes with just a couple of people, you see Jesus at his best. So tonight we're kicking off this series and uh, we're actually starting in the book of John, because John is this unique eyewitness view of Jesus. He sees Jesus in a way that people don't often get to see Jesus. He's the youngest disciple. He's a teenager when he follows Jesus. And he gets to see some of the behind the scenes things about the life of Jesus. And this story we're doing, it's actually a wedding bash. It's a wedding bash that happens in Cana in Galilee. And uh, Jesus if you don't know anything about church, if you're new to faith, if you're watching online and you're not sure about the whole Christian thing, you've probably heard of Jesus turning water into wine. And this is that incident. Now, I have brought here a bottle of wine. I got a little bit, you know, thirsty. And so I've already started drinking it. And it's a bit embarrassing because now I look like a wine bibber. Uh, but this is a barefoot Merlot. It is six... 99, the sweet spot of wine prices. Now, we're going to talk about Jesus turning water into wine. And it's a true kind of recollection of Jesus's ministry. It's presented as historical fact. I want you, if you've heard of Jesus turning water into wine, I want you to estimate how many of these bottles did Jesus produce for this wedding party? 
Anyone want to hazard a guess? How many bottles? Hundred, five hundred, two thousand, six, <laughs> nine hundred. All right, well, we'll come back to that because we're going to read it in the passage. And in fact, if you read it in the passage, do some quick maths, you'll be able to work it out. So this is the passage recorded by John. It says this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now that thing, the third day, that's a little Easter egg. If you've heard about like the Marvel films where they put in little Easter eggs. Oh, look, there's a shield with a little star in it. I wonder if that's telling us anything about Captain America. I'm a Marvel nerd and that's an Easter egg that I picked up on. Not everyone picks up on these, but they're little kind of things thrown into the narrative. Well, John throws in this Easter egg on the third day. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And all the people who know how the story ends knows that another great thing happens on another third day. The resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying, actually, this was a third day after the events in chapter one. But it's important because it's kind of a little Easter egg that says, this is about what Jesus does in his resurrection kingdom. This is about how God's plan for humanity that is out there in the future is breaking into the right here and now. On the third day, you're going to see a bit of God's resurrection forward to come Life after kingdom breaking into the here and now. So it's the third day wedding in Cana. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this is a big deal. This is a big deal because in the Jewish times, the wedding was such a big, huge event that happened. You'd have the groom coming down to meet his bride. And he would come at night with this great big torch procession. And all the people banging drums and dancing and rejoicing and the tambourines. Chaka, 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 chaka. And they would come with the torches and the tambourines and they would gather the bride up. And they would take her to the groom's home that he'd prepared for her. And then they would have the ceremony and then they'd have the wedding feast. It would last up to seven days. And they would provide eating and drinking. And the first time that we see Jesus in his ministry, he's at a party eating and drinking. Now, the fact that the wine runs out, this is a big, big deal for first century Jewish culture. They're in an honor-shame culture. They're in a culture that's all about good omens and bad omens. And if you run out of wine, that's a very, very bad omen. Are you still trying to do the, the maths? <laughs> I shouldn't have ever brought that out. It's all Nathan's thinking about. He's got his head on the... Have you got any initial calculations? He did his maths wrong. All right, well, we haven't even, anyway, never mind. Um, it's coming, the next bit is coming. You can all do quick maths then and then see if you can beat Nathan. Um, but yeah, you have this social disaster of running out of wine. It would be a disgrace for people. It'd be such a bad omen that people say, oh, this is a bad match. This is a bad marriage. They ran out of wine. What does that tell you? They're not blessed by God. They have got the wrong things wrong. The very thing that they need to get a great launch into married life. It's overshadowed. And this thing could kind of follow you. The stink of it would follow you for years to come. In fact, there's even historical instances that we know where people actually sued 
a couple for the wine running out at their party. Litigation could ensue for your wine running out. And so Mary, Jesus's mother, is there. Maybe she's Aunt Mary. Maybe she's just a great local friend. But for whatever reason, she's somewhere behind the scenes. And although no one knows what's happening on the outside in the party, they're all just still laughing and drinking. Mary sees this is disaster. This is so bad for this poor couple. Jesus, you've got to do something. So she tells him they have no more wine. Woman, Jesus says, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, again, when Jesus says woman to his mother, I mean, if I did that to my mother, who's probably watching right now on the live stream, I would be in so much trouble. I would be slapped so hard. You don't call your mother woman. But actually for Jesus, it is this tender, intimate nickname. There's precedent for this, but we definitely know about Jesus that woman was, it's a bit like if you say to your dad, oh man, you know, it's a kind of an endearing term of affection. At least I wouldn't do it with my dad again. He would end me. But with Jesus, with her, his mother, it's like woman. In fact, one of the most tender exchanges between Jesus and his mother Mary takes place on the cross when Jesus is dying and Mary's there and John, the disciple who's written all of this stuff, he's there. And Jesus says to John, John, this is your mother. And he says to his mother, woman, here's your son. And they are adopted. Uh, they adopt one another. John takes care of Mary for the rest of her life. He takes her to Ephesus eventually. We know that from church history. But it's one of these affectionate terms that Jesus has because there's such a bond between him and his mother, woman. Why are you involving me? So embarrassing. My time has not yet come. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. You're asking me to get involved in this stuff. And look, these guys, they've drunk so much that they've drunk all the wine. You want me to just encourage public drunkenness? What do you want from me? She doesn't reply. She simply says, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood st six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Six times 120, quick maths, 720 litres. Into a three-quarter bottle, quick maths, 1,000 close enough, 960. So if you said 2,000, you're crazy. If you said 1,000... Very, very good. If you said six, you need to go back to Sunday school. But we're talking about a thousand bottles, give or take, between 700 and 1,000 bottles. It then goes on. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they fill them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink like these guys. But you have saved the best till now. 
What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The book of John is structured around seven key signs, signposts, things that explain to you, that point you in the right direction so that you understand where we're going with this Jesus story. Who is he? What is he about? What does he want? What is his mission? What is his nature? What is his character? Jesus says, I'll give you seven signs, seven the number of completion. And this is the first sign. I'm the guy that turns water into wine. I'm the person that takes the ordinary, everyday, humdrum, no nonsense stuff of your life and I make it sparkling and delicious and vintage and incredible and something that is so life-giving and so wonderful. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is all about taking just the humdrum, everyday, ordinary and transforming it. He said, I've not come to give you religion. I've not come to put you in your place. I've not come that you should bow down and tremble. I've come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness. And I want you to experience that wine of the brand new kingdom. And there's two points of view that I want to take from this. First of all, there's the point of view of the, um, the people that Jesus is uh, speaking to. So Mary and the servants. And what they have is they have a posture of intimate trust. Intimate trust. That thing with Mary, with his mother, where he, they, he says, she says to him, They've got no more wine. Can you do something? And Jesus says to her, look, it's not my time. It's not my place. This is not my plan. This is not my will. This is not what I was intending to do. I'm trying to keep a low profile here. I'm just a guest at a wedding and I don't want to stir the waters too much. I've got my plans. But Mary says, listen, this is what I'm asking. And remember who's asking. I'm your mother. I know you and I love you. And I'm asking you to do this. And because of that, Jesus has no choice but to answer her request. If you don't know about prayer, or if you're new to faith, or even if you're someone that has faith, but you've always struggled with prayer. Maybe you find prayer a difficult thing. Maybe you find it like one of those things that you feel guilty that you don't do more often, but you, you struggle with it. This is probably one of the best pictures of prayer that I can give you. It is a woman going to Jesus and saying, do this, please, because I'm asking you. I have been a Christian for all of my life, give or take. Um, and over all this time of just longing to know Jesus more, to, to be close to him and, and to discover him more. I feel like now I'm in a place where I'm experiencing more of Jesus and more of his reality, perhaps than I've ever done. And the times that I have each day just in prayer, I'm pushing not just into this is my request, these are the things that I want, here's my list, but into more of contemplative prayer, being quiet in the presence of God, just trying to get close to Jesus, get a glimpse of Jesus, giving myself enough time and space to be in the presence of the master. 
And you find that it changes the way that you pray because no longer is it a shopping list of all these requests that I have of God and I tick off the list one after the other. Now it becomes this kind of intimate, trusting thing. I was just, um, yeah, I, I was on a, a little bit of a prayer retreat a few weeks ago and I was walking. It was actually in um, Wales. I booked myself into an Airbnb. I just went off for a couple of days and uh, I was just walking through the Black Mountains and I was just worshipping Jesus and being intimate with him and, and, and crying out to him and opening up my heart and pouring out my life and all these things. And I just felt God speak to me these simple words. Ask me what you want. And it was as if Jesus was saying, this is what prayer should be. It's us having our relationship. And I say, Lord, this is what I want you to do for me right now. I wish I could say that I have that kind of experience all the time. I don't. Sometimes I pray and I don't particularly feel anything. Sometimes I do it and it's just a matter of discipline. But it happens consistently and it happens. And the more that I do, the more that I find myself uh, just molded into the kind of person that can hear from the master and can speak with intimacy to Jesus. You know, we, um, we have Love Running, which you probably have heard of by now. But Love Running is our churches across the city, a mass entry into the Bristol 10K. We've got uh, over a couple hundred already signed up to it. There'll be more before the thing is through. But we're all running the, the 10K together. And what I've got is I've got all these people. We had our launch seminar yesterday. We had about 100 people in Woodlands for this launch. And we started to teach them about how to run. And most of the people doing Love Running have never done anything like it before. In fact, one woman said to me at the end, she said, Philip Gennardo, I hate you. I get that a lot. You'd be surprised. Uh, and I said, well, thank you very much. Thanks for coming. She said, no, I would never have done this kind of a thing. But because you've said this and you've motivated us to run for trafficked people and the needs of the city, I'm going to do it. But I'm not going to enjoy it. And I said, listen, I'm so glad that you have done that. And it's very kind of you to say that you hate me. But listen to me, as you practice and as you train, you become more and more able. And you'll be amazed what you can do in three months time when we run that race together. And it's the same with prayer. It's the same with intimacy with Jesus. The more that I'm practicing the presence of Jesus, the more that I'm giving time, consistent time, for me, it's an alarm that's set in the morning. It's a commitment to not read any social media, not go onto the news websites, not play any games. I'm addicted to chess right now. If anyone wants to play me, I'll see you on chess.com. I shall take you down. But it's a commitment not to do any of that stuff. I just want to be in the presence of Jesus. And as I'm in the presence of Jesus, it's the best part of my day. And I can say, Lord God, will you do this? because I'm asking you to have that relationship. That Mary relationship with Jesus is the gold standard. That's what we're looking for. But also it's how the servants have this trust. These six stone jars, they are filled and Jesus says, fill these up. The servants come and they fill them to the brim. We don't know why we're doing this. This is used for bathing. Why are we doing this? It's a party, not a bath time. Why are we doing this? But we will do it anyway. And then Jesus says, give the water to the master of the feast. They're like, why are we doing this? This is disgusting. This is like toenail water. 
We're giving it to the master of the feast. He know well, he doesn't know where this stuff has come from, otherwise he wouldn't drink it. But they just say, Jesus said it, we're gonna do that. Sometimes I think about what we're trying to do here with church. And sometimes I think, you know, we're we're just trying to be obedient to Jesus. We feel like God has given us a calling. Sometimes it goes swimmingly, sometimes it's really, really challenging, really hard. But all we're going to do is we're just going to trust what Jesus says. We're going to do what Jesus says. If he tells us to do something, we feel and discern that together, we're going to do it. That's why, as Lex said, for our weekend, our Metro weekend, that time away, it's going to give us a chance just to say to Jesus, what are you saying for us as a church? Where are you wanting us to go? What do you want us to do? We'll do whatever you say. Because that's what intimate trust is all about. So that's the point of view of people that are interacting with Jesus. But for Jesus himself, it's a whole different thing that you see. With Jesus, we're talking about extravagant grace. Extravagant grace. This is an extravagance. Now, did you get the maths in the end, Nathan? Well, we can't work in gallons. Yeah, but you're in England now. We don't do gallons. We do do gallons, actually, don't we? We, do, we sort of do gallons and litres, but I don't get gallons. How, yeah, anyway, thousand, when I found out it's a thousand bottles of wine, that's so extravagant. Jesus is saying, I'm going to do this, but I'm not just going to give you enough for this party. You know, maybe there's half a day left. And, you know, it's just this kind of embarrassing thing because the wedding's nearly over, but they've miscalculated or the people have just drunk way too much and it's all kicking off. It's all got a little bit dis, um, disjointed. Jesus says, I'm not just going to give you enough to see through the party. I'm going to give you a thousand bottles. And the master of the ceremonies, who knows this is wine, says, oh my goodness, normally you do the best stuff first and then when everyone's had too much to drink, you bring out the cheap stuff. You bring out barefoot Merlot, $6.99 on offer. You know, the cheapest stuff without being absolute dishwater. That's what you bring for the end of the thing. Instead, you brought out Chateau Neuf de Pape. Is that right? I get that right? That is right. Yeah, you see, Toby knows about his wines. How much would a bottle of Chateauneuf de Pape set you back? No, but we know that it's good stuff. And it's like Jesus has done this extravagant thing. I was brought up in church. And for years as a kid uh, and a young person growing up in church, I kind of had a vision of God as miserly and grudging. He would give you stuff, but it's like you better make good use of it. Because, you know, don't come crying to me if it all finishes. I felt like God was, would just give you the bare minimum. And that Christians were supposed to be just getting by. You know, nothing too good in your life. But actually Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. You've got the wrong idea. I'm extravagant. I'm like the God that just likes to lavish good stuff on you. One of my favorite verses in Ephesians 1 starts at verse 7, but it says this. It says, how great, sorry, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. 
God has lavished such goodness and such kindness and such grace upon us that it's absolutely incredible. I had an experience of uh, lavishness and goodness and extravagance like you can't believe just this last summer. Now, for those of you that don't know me, uh, I've got two children. They're grown up. I know I don't look old enough, but uh, they're, grown, um, they're grown and they're old and they have jobs. And, uh, you know, the youngest one has a great job, but the oldest one, we, we did well with her. We, I don't know how it happened, but somehow she ended up working for a luxury hotel chain, a global luxury hotel chain, a chain so exclusive that I'd never heard of it until she went there. You know, I only know like Premier Inn. My idea of luxury is like Hilton. Paris Hilton. You know, that is my level. This is, a, this is where the footballers and the film stars go. And she comes to us and she says, Mum, Dad, I've got a deal. I can take you to the best hotels in Spain. We're going to do a little tour of these hotels in Spain. And that's how, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> we ended up in the Ritz Madrid. It was unbelievable. We drove up in our Uber. And behind us was a Lamborghini. <laughs> Lamborghini pulls up behind us and people start taking pictures. And they start taking pictures of us in the Uber because they presume that we're like the bodyguards or something. And we go into this hotel. There's flowers. There's this fruit basket. But it's not just like apples and oranges and pears. It's like all this exotic stuff. And then there's these amazing chocolates. There's all these cakes. There's a little note that's been laid out for us, handwritten, welcoming Mr. and Mrs. Gennardo. We're so pleased to have you in the Ritz. They don't realize we have no money. In fact, we stayed there for three days. And at the end, we said, thank you very much. It's a great stay. We have no money. <laughs> we ran away and uh, we got away with it. But while we were there, we were just lavished with this unbelievable extravagance. I mean, I can remember going up to the roof side and there's this infinity pool looking across the whole city and someone comes and scurries up to you and brings you like an ice box with all these beautiful drinks in it's all on the house you go down for breakfast breakfast I've never seen so many waiters in one place at the same time literally our table it was next to kind of this main table that had vases of freshly cut flowers on and there was like 20 vases of these amazing flowers and you go by and they would make you your meal as you ask for it. anything you want you just ask for it they'll make it for you there was one guy I kid you not his whole job, his whole reason of being there was to carve a slice of ham from the leg of a unicorn, I think it was. And uh, he'd give you your ham and it was just over the top. We had drinks in the lobby one day. Uh, there was a guy playing the White Steinway grand piano in the corner. There was all these celebrities around. Uh, they said, what drink would you like? I said, I'd like a hot chocolate because I'm a very simple guy with simple needs. They brought us literally hot chocolate. I mean like chocolate that was hot, like liquid chocolate. And I ate it. Every pleasure center in my brain is just short circuiting at this. And then they ply you with all these biscuits and chocolates and crisps and exotic stuff. And it's all just lavished on you. We didn't pay for any of it. We just, here you go. Couldn't believe it. In fact, I spent less on that hotel room in the five-star hotel. In fact, it was about half the price that I paid for a one-bed 
Airbnb that I went on my little retreat for. Uh, it was unbelievable. And you're just lavish. It's just so extravagant. And Jesus says, that is what I'm like as a God. I'm five-star treatment. I'm a God that loves to give you good things. And the best thing about this whole incident is that the people who were affected, they didn't know anything about it. Why? It was because a woman with a relationship with Jesus spoke to Jesus on their behalf. And then servants who were just being obedient to Jesus did what he told them. And the people around them had this unbelievable experience. The bride and the groom, they've now got this incredible wedding gift. They have to build an extension on their house to fill and fit all these kind of incredible jars of wine. It is unbelievable what God has done for them. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, okay, this is my calling card. This is the introduction to who I am. I'm extravagant. I'm a good God. I'm the kind of God that wants to lavish you with good things. Part of our call as church, for those of us that have faith here, for those of us part of the community of faith here at Metro, is that we speak to Jesus and we do what Jesus tells us. Why? So that those around us can be blessed. God can do wonderful things for the company that you work for just because you're there. God can do amazing things for your family because you're there. For your flatmates, your friends, your course buddies, because you're there. And they might not even realize that it's God that's doing those great things for them. But you have been speaking to Jesus. You've been intimately trusting him, obedient to him. And Jesus says, I just need people who love me who have relationship with me, who can ask me to get involved and who will do what I ask them to do, even if it seems crazy, ridiculous, not bound to succeed. I need those people because I want to touch and bless the world. And of course, when we think about Jesus and wine, we know another Easter egg, don't we? That wine always symbolizes his blood. That's the amazing thing about this sign. The six stone water jars uh, with all the gallons, uh, they were used for ceremonial washing. They were used in a religious system that said, you're unclean, you're unholy, you're dirty, you need to change. You need to be cleansed and cleansed and cleansed again and cleansed again. But Jesus is saying, I'm transforming all of that and I'm going to turn that ceremonial purification right into an extravagant flowing out of my blood. My blood that gives forgiveness for sins once and for all, that makes you whole and makes you clean. You get all of that from me. So this, this first episode in the series Jesus Eats is all about introducing Jesus as a person who transforms the ordinary into the extraordinary, as a God who's not just tight-fisted and begrudging, but who lavishes five-star amazing grace upon us. I'm not saying that it's going to be <laughs> hotels and Lamborghinis. For most of us, it's not going to be that, but there's a blessing that we have spiritually in Christ. And one day on that third day kingdom, when it comes and we get to have the wine of the new kingdom,
and we get to feast and enjoy with Jesus. There is grace and there is a lavish, extravagant gift that we cannot possibly comprehend out of our comprehension. And that is the promise of Jesus's kingdom. We still have pain, we still have suffering, we still have challenge. But one day we will have the fullness of his kingdom. And Jesus is saying, look, this is who I am all about. I'm all about the best, best new wine. A supernatural, miraculous wine that you can experience and enjoy. So here's our big idea. Water into wine is a resurrection sign of God's kingdom where Jesus lavishes extravagant grace upon us. As we develop an intimate trust in him, he'll use us to bless the world around us. I'd like us to pray. And I'd like us just to uh, just take a little bit of time to think about our response to this message. So just invite you where you are, just to close your eyes, bow your heads, and take just a little moment to reflect.